This is Runehammer. In the early 1920s, fueled by recent mechanical advances from the Great War, the rural mountains of western Pennsylvania were teeming with coal fever. Your squad has been working a shaft called Tecumseh 24, one of the deepest ever drilled, and down in its depths, the five of you find yourself at the very frontier of the operation. And there you discover it, or what it once was, a great cavity, sides sloping upward and inward, not a full pyramid, but more a trapezoidal cube of some kind, hewn from a single mass of black basalt and carved with strange ideograms that resemble nothing from the human world. And as the lantern light of your helmets falls upon these strange surfaces, some primordial gas is released from vents in the walls. It reeks of ancient plants, giant insects, lizards the size of buses. And you feel a change in your bones. Your fingers, watery, gelatinous. Your voices gurgling and croaking. You look to your companions. Their skin grows pale. Your time is limited. You have entered the heart of an ancient place known only as the RPG Mainframe. Hey, greetings programs, it's your buddy Hank Infernail up in here for the Rune Hammer podcast. This is where we do that RPG mainframe. This is episode 22, the double deuce. <laughs> welcome back everybody and especially welcome new patrons to the Looney Bin. Um, we have people arriving from all over this wonderful earth and joining us here on this journey of RPG deep think that we call the mainframe. Now today we've got a nice a juicy cheeseburger of thinking, um, which is that I want to talk about mythos fiction. Now mythos fiction is a term that gets tossed around now and again, um, but uh, usually it's just used to imply Call of Cthulhu and its derivatives, right? And uh, this is kind of a, uh, 
I don't know, a refrain or almost a mantra of the tabletop and especially like tabletop fantasy world is, you know, mythos fiction and how H.P. Lovecraft is, is awesome and Call of Cthulhu and, oh, you got to go read that and stuff like that, right? But what I wanted to talk about is a little more in detail about why any of us should even care about mythos fiction, what really separates it from sort of common fiction and why it's, you know, so closely linked to this sort of creative life that we live as tabletop creators, players, and enthusiasts. And then sort of finally, what, how do we use it? What's the main way, or at least a few cool ways that we can use mythos fiction in our game creation, you know, in this sort of cyclic experience that we all go through, especially as dungeon masters, which is that we're, we're constantly pouring over the world looking for that next cool clue to something we're going to create that's not only going to get us excited about the next game session, but blow our players' minds. And so those three sort of subjects are what I want to talk about with mythos fiction. Now, just for a super fast history lesson, um, the most famous um, you know, mythos fiction is by far, of course, H.P. Lovecraft because of his establishment of a pantheon of strange gods and of kind of of cosmic law. And this, this pantheon and the, these laws are basically instantiated or reflected in several smaller stories. Now, the other major work that you've got to know about, and I highly recommend getting this, is the Zothic Legend Cycle. Um, by legendary fantasy editor Lynn Carter. So Lynn Carter basically took um, a lot of Lovecraft's work and, and went further with it. And the fun thing about Lynn Carter is that he also expanded into some realms that referenced real life. So another big part of the sort of history lesson for mythos fiction is there's one little interesting eddy in history that is a bit mind-blowing, and I really strongly invite all of you guys to do a quick little investigation into it. Now, one of the fun things about how mythos fiction has become so ingrained in the human imagination of modern times is that there was a moment in history um, and this is the early part of the 20th century, late part of the 19th century, when real people were actually sort of believing and investigating and researching this kind of alternate cosmos. And this is also when Lovecraft is coming together. This is when Conan is coming together. This, this was a time of, of this sort of strange side shoot of knowledge that was basically later completely disproven scientifically. But if you do a fun search on the lost continent of Mu. You'll find out about two key characters, one being Augustus Le Plongeon and uh, also James Churchward. And these are two real people who basically believed there was a lost continent that uh, was in the Pacific that explained, um, you know, some architectural similarities across the globe, explained some anthropological sort of oddities around the world. And then they took it even further to, to add all these sort of strange mythic books and weird texts and even these tablets that are all part of this lost continent theory that all come together in a, a very Lovecraftian weird out. But of course, as the 20th century unfolded, all of this re research was completely debunked. And these, these guys who were really into all this, <laughs> for lack of a better way to put it, they kind of had to die bitter and, and, and disgraced 
because they you know, kept on defending this stuff. But I can't tell you the entire story, but I would love to invite you to look into the lost continent of Mu and especially the sort of the exploits and adventures of Le Plongeon. Like this guy, Augustus Le Plongeon, this guy went all in on this stuff and, you know, um, surmised all these links between Egypt and the Mayans and like all this kind of stuff, the Troana Codex and the, the Landa alphabet and all this stuff. But then you fast forward a little bit and you've got Lovecraft, then fast forward another 50 years and you've got uh, Lynn Carter, who really probably gave the most recognizable form of the modern sort of Cthulhu myth. It's just for odd reasons, I don't think he is really known much or appreciated. And so he did kind of modernize it and he sort of added some a little more fun to it and there's more sort of God characters and there's more to it. Whereas Lovecraft, I think is really cool in this sort of history lesson here. But I think when you actually sit down to read Lovecraft, a lot of people get tripped up in the writing and the language. And also, of course, he has rhetoric that is you know, really unfortunately dated for his time that can be very repellent to readers. And it is, a, it is right there in the writing. You can feel it and you can see it. You know, it's right out in the open. Um, and so these barriers, I think, keep people away from, from uh, Lovecraft's writing. Even though it's brilliant, I think that it doesn't permeate our imaginations nearly as much as it could um, as, a, as a form of literature, not just like it's horror, you know, like this is really cool horror. Oh, tentacles, you know, that, that really is not what it's about. Okay, so that's my quick little history lesson. So look those things up and, uh, and have fun going down the mythos fiction wormhole with me. Now, there's a lot of other writers, but I'm not going to sort of sit here and list them. There's also a lot of great anthologies, um, the most recent one of which is The Children of Lovecraft, which I just finished, and that'll be in my Lair of Knowledge video um, next week. That's all modern writers and really good stuff. Okay, so there's just your quick sign of kind of history lesson of some of the key players here with mythos fiction. So, so what is it? What is mythos fiction? Why am I even talking about this? <laughs> I would say the key thing that differentiates mythos fiction from normal sort of fantasy fiction or science fiction is rather than focusing on the sort of emotional growth arc or experiences of individuals, and of characters. The key focus is on the revelation of sort of truths. That is the fundamental element that defines mythos fiction to me. The characters in mythos fiction can be transient. They can come and go. You barely know them. And many times you don't even know their names. Um, they're just sort of people. Um, occasionally you do know their names and they have like very realistic names, like they're plucked from the real world. Um, but the most interesting part about the stories tends to be the revelation of deeper worlds, of ancient things, of strange truths, of bending the rules of the cosmos and, and this kind of stuff. You're not uh, fascinated with the fact that, uh, you know, Charles Dexter Ward graduated college and fell in love. <laughs> that is not what that story is about. <laughs> it's about the fact that he can like teleport and stuff. <laughs> and the fact that like the people can be transient between dimensions and stuff like that. So you can see the big difference here. And now you start to see why this could be interesting to Dungeon Masters. So I think that's the, the easy definition. Now it's come to imply a lot of other things too. Lovecraft so firmly rooted this genre with his work. I think the term mythos fiction has accidentally become a synonym for sort of Lovecraftian horror or, you know, outer God type 
type stories or, you know, strange eons, which is actually um, a Lynn Carter story. Um, so a lot of people that hear um, these names of sort of quote-unquote famous Lovecraft stories, a lot of those are actually Lynn Carter stories. Um, and so you just, you can do the homework there. There's a lot of really fun homework. You know, Lovecraft also worked with other writers, um, and they're sort of very under underappreciated and under-heralded. And so as you go down this wormhole with me, you can find out about all this stuff. But mythos fiction, to me, is stories about worlds being revealed, about large truths. Now, we don't necessarily have to have outer gods and Lovecraftian feel to things. You can have mythos fiction that could be about, you know, a more Greek-feeling pantheonic world. Or you could have mythos fiction like Ringworld by Larry Niven, which is like this sort of revelation of large alien culture, or this revelation of titanic sort of architecture or technology. Um, you could even have what sort of a mythos fiction like, um, what's the other one? Uh, the Integral Trees, which is basically the mythos and the truths behind this gas world. It's a, it's a landless world. So it's like a huge atmosphere that has no planet and everything's just floating around in there. So yeah, the characters are doing things, but what you're really interested in is the revelation of these worlds and the deep history and potentially even the future and, and things like this. So that to me is the essence of mythos fiction. Another great way to see the, the knife edge that, that can define mythos fiction over like adventure fiction is some of the difference between the first Hellboy movie and the second Hellboy movie, getting really contemporary now, right? So in the first Hellboy movie, you really get this feeling there's like these large, strange forces moving, right? The, the gods of chaos, right? And Rasputin is this sort of timeless thing. Then there's that amazing ice tomb where they resurrect him, and they don't even explain what that is. And like, it's all just very like, whoa. There are like massive, demonic, strange forces at play. And, and in a lot of ways, that's the focus. The second Hellboy movie is much more of a sort of a romp or an adventure. And so you have some, some neato things going on, but the way in which it's presented, it becomes a lot more about quips and character moments and stuff like that, rather than this odd feeling of this titanic force. And the titanic force, even though it's not essential to mythos fiction, is always a great way for a writer to bring this sensation because titanic forces give you this feeling of revelation that there's something so much larger than what you thought, you get that that thrill. And when you feel that thrill, it's like finding the pyramid in the jungle. You know, that, that moment, that's a, a, a mythographic moment. That's a, a moment of revelation that becomes mythological. And so that to me is what this fiction is all about. Okay, so second thing. Let's see. It, it, which is, why is this interesting to us? Why, why is this interesting to a dungeon master? Why, why am I talking about mythos fiction? Why has there been such a close link between tabletop and D&D and, uh, &D and so forth and Lovecraft? Well, on the surface, you got a lot of cool monsters, right? But I really don't think that that's the answer. The, the, the mining of monsters, I don't think that, you know, we needed Lovecraft to make up cool monsters with tentacles. The reason I think that these two things are linked is that the D&D hobby is much like the reading of mythos fiction. It's a certain taste that we have. We like to read things like the Silmarillion, right? 
I mean, sure, every once in a while we'll read a quote-unquote normal novel, but as dungeon masters and as D&D enthusiasts, as tabletop crazy heads, we love to read about these pantheons and world histories and the, the swaying of massive forces and how armies rose and fell and castles were destroyed and, you know, the coastlines changed and centuries went by. For whatever reason, that's a big part of what we're interested in. We like to look at the epoch, whereas the player is looking at the character. And we're the dungeon master. We look at the epoch. We look at the, the great titanic forces. We set up the big bad evil guy, right? But the player is looking at, you know, oh, well, I'm Zymer. I'm an old man who's a wizard. And so they take this stance of, I'm going to discover these titanic truths. And then the dungeon master says, oh, Yes, I have surprises in, you, in store for you. And this is the second reason that I think mythos fiction is so closely intertwined with tabletop. First of all, dungeon masters think in big epochs and titanic forces. And second of all, the magic of revelation is huge. It, it, it is huge in how you can use mythos fiction and a mindset that's mytho mythological in your games is that as the play is unfolding, they aren't just killing kobolds so they can survive and get paid at the end of the day, right? They are going to discover this relic or find this chamber or unearth this series of tunnels or, or whatever, right? And this is a really common theme in D&D, is that revelation is a big part of, uh, it's almost like the bread of the sandwich. <laughs> the peanut butter and jelly are killing kobolds and making rolls and making saves, right? But the bread that holds it all together are these huge revelations about the truth behind XYZ or the forces that created the blah, right? It's like, oh my God, this is all part of the of Tiamat. Ah, you know, this kind of, you know, these moments. And they're not always easy to execute, but I think all of you out there who are dungeon masters know exactly what I'm talking about, this revelation. It's like people are playing through, they're, they're walking down a car lot and they come around a corner and there's, you know, a hovercraft. Th that to me is a moment of like, oh, you know, let's get in that, <laughs> right? The choice becomes clear. Everything else becomes gray. Like, look at that, right? So it's like when you're in the mine and you find this sort of antediluvian, you know, solid stone chamber that's like pyramidal and weird and there's all these weird carvings and like weird little glowing fungus and it has nothing to do with a normal subterranean environment and this is like when players go oh right maybe there's a deeper dungeon maybe they're here to summon something maybe here to stop something from being summoned so in lovecraft's writing he used a lot of this sort of um you know vast gulf of time to do his revelation. And I think despite some of the clumsiness of, of the language, because just of the era that he wrote in, he does have a tremendous skill at this revelation. I think one of the biggest cases of this is um, at the Mountains of Madness or even the Dreams in the Witch House. The Dreams in the Witch House is basically, you know, that these truths and these, these gulfs of time and meaning are hidden even in mundane places. And they can permeate your mind through sort of dimensional crossing and stuff. And, and then what's crazy is you come all the way back down to a, a story like Cool Air by H.P. Lovecraft, which is Cool Air is just this weird air conditioning setup to keep this like dead guy alive. <laughs> That's it. There's no mention of these colossal revelations. But because they feel like they belong in the same world and like maybe this dead guy was able to be kept alive by air conditioning because of 
a phenomenon like Azatoth in the Dreams in the Witch House, you know, or even the sort of weird supernatural forces in uh, the Rats in the Walls. So it all links together and it creates a mythology and then you get this cool feeling. And, and you can also probably feel it as a dungeon master. This is a lot like world creation, right? There's all these little small stories, but some of them are big stories. Like uh, at, the mouth, uh, at the Mountains of Madness is a really big story. Um, you might argue that Cthulhu, Call of Cthulhu is a somewhat big story too because it has this giant island and this mountain-sized god and stuff like this. There's a lot of colossal things going on. Whereas all the way down at the, you know, like Cool Air and others, it's all about individuals, you know, or even, um, what is it, the, the thing in the darkness or the thing on the doorstep, you know, sort of being plagued as an individual by this sort of very small scale evil force that comes from some faraway dimension. And all these things to me, if you, if you guys are like me as a dungeon master, they feel like food for creating adventures and ideas. So... That's my, my jam on that, on that subject. Now, finally, this is what I really kind of, this is the money of the talk here, is one of the most useful things about mythos fiction as a sort of miner, right? I love to mine everything for my games. I mean, I just do, especially now that I'm, you know, doing the podcast and do videos and still in games and everything. It's like, you need to be mining all over the world <laughs> and throughout history to find new ideas and things that keep you excited. Well, mythos fiction to me, from a Dungeon Master's standpoint, is the absolute perfect front. Now, by front, I don't mean like, you know, a laundry business that's hiding the mafia. I mean a front in the sense that Dungeon World uses the term. So if you guys are familiar, in Dungeon World, you set up campaigns by building fronts. A front is a massive, multifaceted threat to the world or to the players or both. As time and adventures unfold, this front unfolds. It has parts and pieces. It has portents. It has actual forces. It has, you know, ways to do harm. It has events. It has impact on the world, but it's all because of a front. So, like, probably the most overused and classic front is, like, the Nazis, right? They're this perfect excuse. There's infinite evil coming out of the Nazis, right? <laughs> Even in Hellboy, for example, you know? And they, you know, sort of did this supernatural take on that front. But it's convenient because it gives you all this built-in meaning and, and implication. And as a player, you, you want to work against these jerks, right? You, you want to stop this stuff. You want to take them out. And that makes it a good front to me. If a front is hard to understand why we should be risking our lives to stop it, that's not a good front. And so what I would like to posit is that mythos fiction, especially in like Lovecraft and in um, Lynn Carter's uh, Zothic legend cycle books and stories, it makes the perfect front for an RPG campaign. It's just a goldmine of little nuggets and jewels <laughs> of monsters, of evil characters, of cults, of strange architecture, of weird tunnels, of time travel, of dimension travel of space travel, all this odd stuff, all contained in this front, which could be considered sort of like, I guess the, the catch-all for it would be like the Elder Gods or the Outsiders, right? These are things and forces that far predate all people. And they kind of are going to come back and reclaim the world, and we're all going to get cooked in the meantime. <laughs> That's the front element of it. And then you have large and small. So from large, you have 
Azatoth and you have Nyarlotep, right? You have these, these freaky gods. The stuff is crazy. Or you have the goat with a thousand young, right? It's crazy stuff, these gods. But then all the way down at the bottom, you have cultists. You have deep ones. You have like the fishy folk from Innsmouth, right? Who are just basically have been worshiping Dagon so long, they're all starting to grow gills and they have slimy skin and stuff. But that's your one hit point monster right there. <laughs> I mean, you know, and then one of them's really big and has a hook for a hand and he's got 10 hit points. But I think you can see how quickly you can mine, the, especially these, you know, sort of pillar works of mythos fiction for your games. Now, even, whether you're doing fantasy, sci-fi, modern, anything, this works. It just transcends all of it. It's so tasty. And so what I invite you to do, take a look at these two sort of, um, you know, cornerstone pieces. So that's like H.P. Lovecraft's Necronomicon, like the whole collection, and then Lynn Carter's Zothic Legend Cycle. Get those under your belt. And then there's a lot of newer anthologies to work through, and you can start to get a more refined taste about what kind of stuff you like. Mike Mignola is still uh, writing, too, so he gets different artists sometimes. So he has a, a book series called Joe Gollum um, that could be for some of you. Another series called Baltimore that has a, a strange sort of, you know, mytho kind of feel to it with a little bit of like a vampire element. Um, and there's many, many more, and I don't want to like accidentally delve into all of them. But I just think it makes the perfect front. It makes the perfect big bad because it's so multifaceted. It can be instantiated into your world in so many different ways that it doesn't feel derivative. Um, and, and I just think there's a lot to be gained for any dungeon master in familiarizing yourself with mythos fiction. So there are going to be cases too, and I've hit a, a few of these recently. Actually, the Joe Gollum books are a little bit like this. They are inspired by this stuff, but they're actually stories about individual people, and it lo I lose my interest a little bit. And so that's actually when I started feeling that uh, this week as I was finishing the book. That's kind of what informed me about that talk is I, I realized to myself, like, you know, I really love stories that aren't necessarily about a person or a couple people that are about these revelations and these, these worlds and this sort of construction of these massive pantheons and the exploration of those pantheons. And I don't think, you know, that this is better than anything else. You know, nothing is better than anything else. You know what I mean? Everybody have fun in your own way. I just think, for me as a dungeon master, this kind of stuff just gets into my brain in the best way. It sets me up to create these complex fronts that are built out of literature and, in particular, mythos fiction. So, you guys, that's about all I wanted to say today. I just wanted to lock that one down. It's a nice little nugget. Um... And uh, so get out there and, you know, get into some of this weird research because it's really fun and strange. And especially if you do a lot of it late at night by yourself, you will start feeling weird. <laughs> and feeling weird is feeling cool. So keep it real, you guys. Don't steal. You always get a deal. It's Hanker and Fernail for Runehammer. Thanks, everybody. And um, I'll see you on the Internet. And actually, one last thing. RageCon in Reno, Nevada next weekend. Um, who knows when you're listening to this podcast, so if you're listening in the far future, don't go to Nevada next weekend. <laughs> we'll all be skeletons. <laughs> anyway, I hope to see you guys, and uh, as always, thank you for your continued support. I'll see you on that old internet, all right? This is Hank from Fernell, signing off.